welcome to Growing E-Commerce. I'm your host, Mike Ryan of Smarter E-Commerce, also known as SMEC. In this episode, I was lucky enough to speak with Max Hallerstede, CEO of Hallerstede GmbH, or GmbH. That's a long-running family business in Germany, which Max helped bring online under the e-commerce trading brand Kofferworld. Um, and Kofferworld translates roughly to suitcase world or luggage world. So what makes this interview so special is that Max is a real pro in logistics, purchasing, and pricing. He talks to us about how years of consultancy helped prepare him for the disruptions of the last couple of years and how these strong and really well-deserved relationships with his brands and vendors have secured his business against new competitors. And we also discuss how he's used forecasting and endurance, really, to avoid losses and make profitable sales. We discuss pricing a lot too, and it's just a really great chance to reflect and learn, particularly, I would say, in the current inflationary climate with e-commerce under pressure and everything else that's going on right now. All right, let's get into it. So Max, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, Maybe you can get us started. Just tell us a bit about yourself. What are you doing for a living? and what kind of what kind of themes interest you? So, what are your what are your responsibilities, and and what is the stuff that you really enjoy about that? Thanks for the invitation to your podcast. My name is Maximilian Hallerstede. I'm the CEO of the company Hallerstede and uh, Kofferwood. Hallerstede is the um, stationary uh, company uh, with four shops, and Kofferwood is our online shop part. Um, I've been in the business now from 2018 on, and um, in fact, it's a family company. Uh, we are not that big. We have like 45 employees, and so as a CEO, you are responsible nearly for everything. You uh, do whatever is uh, important on the day. Some days it can be that I'm with our logistics people together like uh, on Black Friday when it's uh, too busy that they can do it on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's not just the family business. If it's, uh, it's in its sixth generation, is that right? Yes, we are in the sixth generation. Um, Hallerstede is uh, founded in 1852 uh, in Oldenburg. And family business always means uh, several generations. And yeah, we are happy with that, uh, that it increased uh, all the time due to different crises like the uh, two world wars mm-hmm. and in the last uh, years, the corona crisis. Yeah, yeah those, that's, a, that's a lot to go through. And, you know, I, so I'm originally from the U.S. And so speaking from, from that perspective, uh, six generations is a, is a long time. And because uh, I think we have a lot of younger businesses and uh, some old ones too, but that it's been in the family the whole time and this level of continuity, I think that's just amazing. Um, so re- really cool. It's almost like a, a vocation at a, a certain point. That's great. Um, and, but we're talking about really like the, the first or second generation that um, Hallerstede and Kofor World um, and your, your whole assortment of brands with suitcases and, and luggage and uh, backpacks and all kinds of stuff here, leather goods as well. We're talking about the first generation really where it's moved from just those four physical stores to the, the whole digital world as well. Um, can you talk to us about the, the transformation and, and your involvement there, 
Um, what has that meant for the business? Yeah, sure. Um, in fact, uh, we started um, from goods for horses, uh, and my grand grandfather originally uh, uh, also uh, worked for the British uh, Royals. Um, uh, he was there and uh, made the I don't know the English word saddles uh, for the horses. Yeah, uh, he it's delivered okay. the saddles. He delivered, so that is the origin of the company. Then it developed over a suitcases and handbags. And uh, about uh, 14 years ago, we started our online business, Cofferworld. Originally, we started it with two other uh, companies from our business together. Um, and after one and a half years, we uh, decided together that three CEOs is a bit too much. Uh, uh, so uh, we bought Coverword that day. And um, now for 12 and a half years, we do it on our own. And we always keep in mind that uh, it has to be one big company, although the uh, yeah, the problems or the the goals that you have to reach are completely different between online and offline. But um, our our big uh, advantage is that we do it all from one point. So the storage and the offline and online company are in the same building. So um, they um, have the benefit that uh, they can use the same storage. And offline has a bigger uh, storage uh, than if they would be on a different place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think um, you'll often hear about these, um, these, you know, online pure players and these kind of um, disruptive or new direct-to-consumer um, companies that come out and so on. And, um, and then you'll hear about like le legacy brands or topics like this. And there, there's really extent to which um, Hallerstedt is, is this truly legacy um, entity in the most positive sense of the word with with all these generations of experience behind it um, and then Colfer world is this newer fascinating um, and modern layer that's built on top of that so are there are there other kinds of um, advantages that you see from having this uh, this heritage and this legacy behind you or are there ways in which that has anchored you or challenged you or been a pitfall in fact, uh, we think that uh, offline and online need to be uh, next to each other as same partners. Mm. Because um, we, for example, we invested in the uh, offline uh, business in 2019 a huge amount to increase our visibility and be uh, uh, not only for Oldenburg a good company, but in the whole area and be one big player in the market mm -hmm. to show we are in a small town with 170,000 people. But uh, nevertheless, we want to use our nice shop that people from the whole area uh, come to us. And this uh, point of view, what we created um, in the offline market uh, helps us to um, get suppliers which are high class mm -hmm. and um, 
we the experience we have uh, and the ideas in the offline market we want to transfer to the online market and um, create um, a good service level for the customers so that uh, in comparison to some uh, pure players uh, online we um, also do the um, training for our online um, employees for the brand so that uh, they know about the uh, things they sell and um, that they can explain to the customers which leather it is or what is the advantage of one suitcase to the next. Mm. And we think that this service uh, idea is uh, important for the future. Price is important, yes, but uh, a lot of companies want that they are um, brand doesn't get damaged um, by too much pricing online so um, they they um, think that it's uh, better to have good players um, who have a high service level and then you can uh, sell without discount if you um, give the customer the experience um, and the idea and the service uh, around the um, buy not only offline but also online mm-hmm. yeah that that's such a great point those those vendor or brand relationships are so key and then you get that kind of when you um, treat them in the way that they want and they're confident that their brand is going to be reflected in a way that as if it would be out of their own hands <clears throat> um, then it's such an asset because of the kind of access that you have and um, the these exclusives and potentially also um, on the on the purchase price side and all, all these kind of kind of knock-on effects those relationships are so important um thanks for sharing about that i want to get back to this pricing topic later in some more detail but before we move on to that just want to ask you a couple more questions about your career so far and, and your and your background so <clears throat> while you've been um uh ceo of the of Kofa World and Hellish Data for a while now. Um, and it's not the only thing that you've worked on. Um, I, I noticed I was spying on you a little bit and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and dug up your, your master's thesis from way back when. And that was about uh, KPIs in, in logistics. And I understand that you've done about six years, if I'm not mistaken, of consulting. Um, and, and logistics has been and supply have been key to the consulting that you've done. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, uh, as I was a student, I worked for TESA from TESA Film uh, as a student. And um, there I wrote my thesis about the KPIs of, of their uh, storages in Europe. So um, we thought about harmonization uh, of all the KPIs uh, and um, we were thinking which are the best. So um, we we discussed it um, quite a long time. So uh, I wrote about it about six months and had a huge insight to the different um, uh, logistic centers and um, after that uh, I went on to the consulting part. Uh, I was in a company um, who was focused on KPIs, uh, so reporting and especially planning. Mm -hmm. Reporting was like we need the numbers to do a good uh, planning, 
but mm. planning was the focus. And there we did like uh, HR planning, um, sales planning, um, supply chain planning, so uh, that you automate uh, that you try to uh, find a good way that uh, the employee doesn't have to search which um, product needs to be resold mm -hmm. by the supplier. Um, but the program tells you, look at these 10 products today because of lead time, uh, minimum order quantities and uh, minimum stock. And um, I did this for six years, uh, about 50 different projects in Germany mm -hmm. uh, with different size of companies from very big companies like Olympus uh, Europe, where I did the financial planning, okay. uh, but also uh, cool companies like Polo Motorrad, where I did the supply chain planning and a huge uh, reporting project. So I had various insights. Um, about the problems uh, different companies have um, at sales planning, forecasting, and um, getting the right product into the right um, offline point of sale. Mm -hmm. And um, this is a huge advantage for my work today because uh, I now use the tool for my own every day. In the morning, I start and look what what happened the last day and um, where do I have to see um, forecast um, some some so, uh, sellouts and um, get in contact with the suppliers to get uh, a restock mm -hmm. especially at the moment where the supply chains are quite a mess <laughs> yeah, for, uh, since, since September last year yeah. uh, it's very important to, to see where there is something starting on mm. and um, to see it very, very early. Yeah, the, well, I definitely wanted to ask you about that uh, that as well. Um, I mean, this is so interesting. First, I just want to ask you about this this tool. So is this something proprietary that you built um, over the course of those years um, consulting or, or, or what, are, what are we talking about with the tool there? Uh, it's the tool board. Um, it's a company from Switzerland and um, the consulting company where I worked, which is named Calver, um, uh, support, uh, supports different um, BI tools and uh, other tools. So uh, my um, part was um, with board planning and reporting and in the background, uh, the normal Microsoft SQL Server um, for the data quality, which is in every company a bit of a problem. <laughs> yeah, some things never change, or so it seems, um, and other things change a lot, like supply chain lately. Uh, so, just maybe you could just um, tell us, like, in the in the in the space that you're in with luggage, suitcases, products like this. Um, you know, I'm not really aware. Where is that stuff typically manufactured? Is a lot of it coming from uh, China? Is a lot of it here in manufactured here in Europe? Or what? What's the situation there? Um, in fact, uh, the production is from China over Vietnam, sometimes mm -hmm. Portugal, Italy, okay. or a bit of it in Germany. Mm -hmm. But uh, if a, 
a lot of companies who produce in Germany also have to get some spare parts from Far East. So sure, sure. the supply little... chains uh, were huge problems for nearly all of our suppliers. Mm -hmm. There were just 10% who didn't have problems. Okay. Um, and especially for luggage, it was a huge problem mm -hmm. because of the higher prices uh, for containers and mm -hmm. also for the uh, small amount of containers who were available. So that uh, sometimes, uh, or at some time for, uh, in the last year, uh, in September, I ordered luggage from September last year throughout the time till March this year. Wow. Normally you, you order it for four weeks, maybe sometimes for two weeks. And at that point where you didn't have any idea how the luggage will increase due to Corona last year, it was still very difficult. You had to get forecast forecast for nearly six months. So it was like, but in fact, It helped us a lot that we did this forecast. And uh, at the moment, uh, we are very happy that we did it that time because our um, stock was very good in April and March. And the, at that time, there was no possibility to get um, luggage from most of the suppliers from, from stock. So we had it already. And could sell it, but other companies who didn't uh, forecast it in September, October last year yeah. had huge problems that their stock were empty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, dealing with these long-term stockouts and the, the missed revenue there and customer experience is all kinds of blowback there. So that that's a huge competitive advantage and congrats on, on managing it so well because it's it's been challenging for everybody, I think. Um, Well, that's really cool. Um, let's return to that that pricing topic that we kind of teased or got hinted earlier. Um, what are some of the characteristics of, of pricing in the luggage sector? Um, you know, are there a lot of brand enforced prices or if you got um, some good freedom, you were mentioning that the, the brands um, appreciate when you can sell um, at their desired price, of course. Um, but Yeah, just talk me through there. What are some of the consumer expectations online versus offline? What what are the factors that you see a lot? Uh, in fact, the last two years were uh, very uh, different in the strategies, you can see, because uh, in the beginning of uh, Corona pandemic, we saw that a lot of companies were struggling with uh, the problems and a lot of companies who didn't go online by then started online and didn't have a clue about the costs online have, like logistics costs, uh, picking costs, uh, sales costs, marketing costs, and so on. So they sold um, the articles to prices who were below of their own costs. Mm -hmm. So um, there was a time where you said, okay, we don't sell it to the price. We keep it on stock and wait. And um, that was like half a year nearly. And in some parts, it came again, like in the lockdown in the beginning of 2021 in Germany. We had this uh, situation again. 
that a lot of companies sold to prices where you say, okay, they can't earn anything. It just needs to be, I need cash. Mm. And uh, these were especially players who didn't have any uh, longer experience in online business. So at that part, you couldn't use your normal strategies that you had. You had to see what is happening in the market and um, had to think about what, what do I want to do with it and um, how is the situation in supply chain, which is was combined to that, how is it uh, um, going on? And at that part, we often decided, okay, we just step back and say, we keep it in stock because there's no more, um, for example, luggage or handbags. There's no, not, no stock uh, at the supplier. So the rest of the uh, other companies sell to a price which is not good and we wait until they are sold out and keep it to a higher price yeah. and um, after this we got to a normal level um, we uh, thought about how to go on with the strategy so uh, in the beginning of 2021 we decided that we want to introduce a pricing engine Mm -hmm. In that context, uh, we um, were looking at the market, what, what is um, possible, which tools are on the market, and then we decided to work together with Mac and uh, went into the beta um, test mm -hmm. uh, with the team of Mac and started uh, the pricing engine in beginning of November 21. Mm -hmm. And for us, it was a huge advantage because we have about three to four thousand um, SKUs, uh, which needs to be checked uh, regularly. Beforehand, we managed to check these articles like once in a month mm -hmm. because to check four thousand articles is, or SKUs, it's difficult. Yeah. It's a lot of time. And now the pricing engine checks these um, articles every day. Mm -hmm. And um, we are happy about it because our margin improved. Normally, you would think the margin goes down because the pricing engine is reacting to other companies. But especially um, in the last month where the, the supply chain was a huge problem um, in the whole market um, a lot of companies got sold out mm -hmm. and then the price the, the price could increase again yeah. so the pricing engine um, from our point is not meant to get the price always lower 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 mm. um, that's why we also try to stop some campaigns at some point keep it offline for like a week and then take it online again to see whether the price increase again. Mm -hmm. And um, in fact, the market is completely different in the various brands and the various products. Um, in some parts, we have like three or four competitors. In some parts, we have like 40, 50, 60 competitors. Mm -hmm. So... You have to see what's 
uh, what's better for you and what um, where you can get a margin where you want to sell the product. And that's what we um, keep in focus uh, the last two years that we uh, don't want to make a sale, but to make a margin. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why we um, keep kept concentrating on some brands and not increase the list of brands by hundreds, for example. Some mm-hmm. other market players like take every brand mm-hmm. that they can get and put it online because they say, say more brands are better. In fact, we think the right brands are better. Yeah. Wow, uh, that's such a cool story. Thank you for for sharing that. Um, I mean, yeah, I love I love what you've said here. This idea of kind of holding your breath longer than these competitors can, because they yeah they just they're not in that position. They don't have that um, kind of strategy in place. They don't have all the pieces operationally in place where you can, <clears throat> you know, say no to chasing that short term revenue and and wait till the time is right to really collect on the profit that you want and that you frankly that you kind of earned or deserve with a strategy like this um so that's super cool and you know to the point you said that uh pricing we're you know in the end we're talking about dynamic pricing here that um it shouldn't always just be lower 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 or just chasing yeah uh this race to the bottom the cheapest competitor who um frankly might not even be running a valid business model um, but that you can actually have margin-based pricing strategies. I think that's super important. Um, generally, I've talked on this podcast a couple of times about the importance of moving a bit away from revenue and really thinking about profitability um, and operational efficacy. And I think that these lessons are more important than ever in the disruptive times that we faced. And yeah, there was this boom in e-commerce, but now we're facing inflation, we're facing all kinds of uncertainty ahead. There's war in Europe. Um, and, you know, a lot of sales have returned offline. So this artificially high uh, online penetration is going back to normal. And I think it's just, it's really, really interesting and important what you've shared there. And um, I want to ask you, so like Google has this, uh, this new technology out. Um, it's in a, I think it's in a beta phase right now. And I guess what I find concerning about it, earlier in the beta, it was called dynamic repricing or something like that. And now they're calling it automated discounting. And I feel like the name there tells you everything you need to know. Um, I mean, yeah, behind the scenes, I believe you can set in some margin stops and stuff like this. But um, but this idea that it's just about discounting. And um, I guess my my... What I find fascinating about this technology from Google and potentially concerning is that um, it integrates well with Shopify shops. Um, of course, there's a lot and, and WooCommerce and some other. So there's there's a lot of the market out there um, where it's basically quite plug and play for them. There's not a lot of technical integration because that's handled by the shop by Shopify. And I wonder if if all those Shopify shops are adopting this technology if it might not um, <clears throat> kind of accelerate that race to the bottom potentially or or kind of enforce or require in a way that other companies um, are getting, you know, I think it's great if other companies get serious about repricing, dynamic pricing, but um, 
I'm just wondering when I hear that, you know, automated discounting rolled out at scale, it, it's slightly concerning to me. What do you think about that? In fact, we um, had a look which tools are on the market last year and um, tried to get an idea what we need. And we noticed that although we have an idea of KPIs and planning, and my wife, which is also in the business, is also consulting um, or has a consulting background. So we could discuss the, the right tools on a high level. Mm. And um, I think what what I heard about Shopify's um, a lot of companies who don't have the online experience started with this part of webshop mm. because it is a bit more like a toolbox and mm. not uh, that individually like uh, Magento which we use. Okay, and uh, in that part. Um, I think for companies who don't want to go into too much detail with the pricing engine, mm. this could be a good idea. But in fact, um, we decided for the possibility of Mac, especially because we can create rules by the logic that we want. Mm-hmm. Because um, we want not only to have like okay, I want to be on place one and make a maximum discount of 15%. But we want to do more. We want to be more in detail and um, take more logic in, into consideration, like how high is our stock? Uh, if the stock is very high, the discount can be higher. If the stock is getting lower, the discount should be lower. Mm-hmm. Or, for example, how old is the uh, SKU to to see um, that older ones, which are not um, never out of stock, should be uh, should have a higher discount. Mm-hmm. And um, Google has a huge amount of data. You shouldn't uh, keep or shouldn't uh, or you should keep that into consideration. Um, that's the advantage of Google, which mm. you can't um, deny. Mm. Um, but a general tool which you have in like for for our uh, market, for example, if thirty or forty companies have the same tool, yeah. it's getting difficult yeah. because the tool know knows the tool, and then what is the tool doing? Yeah. That's why we also uh, looked um, when we decided for a tool which competitors have the same tool as we have and um, try to figure out what happens if another competitor also decides for Smack. Um, How does the tool work and what can we do in the tool to be better if another company, if do we have the possibility to uh, increase it, although uh, it's the same tool. Mm. And um, I think that's important mm. to to see which which possibility you have to uh, think about what you want to do and have a good idea. Try it and then see, okay, this helps us 
to uh, to have more sales with a solid margin. Mm. And um, in this part, we always keep on discussing and improving the tool. And sometimes it's like you go over the the market, uh, the local market, where you buy uh, some fish or some fruits, and see something and say, okay, they are just next to each other. How do they do that? Is it the price or is it service? And mm-hmm. sometimes um, you you get some ideas where you think, okay, if we do it like this, what is what is going on in the pricing engine then? Then we test it for for one brand and see, okay, good idea or not so good idea. Mm-hmm. But as we are so flexible with it to to uh, to to code something in the in the tool, the so. For us, it's the advantage that the limitation is only our brain, what we can imagine of tools. And that's mm-hmm. what I learned due to the time of consulting mm-hmm. that um, first you sh- should think what is the best way without keeping the tool in consideration and then see how can I do it with the tool? Mm-hmm. What do I have to do to get it online. Yeah. And uh, with a Google tool where you have this big company who is not that flexible, yes. I think um, for companies who mm. don't want to do so much, it's it, it may be a good idea, but yeah. I'm not sure what the, the prices in the market will do with this tool and uh, I think we will have to wait and see what which impact um, this tool will have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you've touched on some really interesting um, problems here and dilemmas like, you know, where there's a Google, they've got to produce a tool that um, is very generalizable that, that many businesses can use. and. Um, it, then it might miss that level of customization or it might not be able to cover edge cases or specific needs. And as you said, Google knows a lot, but there's also, they don't know what they don't know. So if you take, you know, even if you assume that um, price is considered um, as a signal to their to their bidding algorithms, for example, like Target ROAS, um, which I'm, I'm not 100% sure if it is a signal there or not, but let's say that it is, it, it's thinking about things in this narrow per auction basis um which is which is great in that individual case it's very real time it's very informed um but then it's maybe missing the bigger picture how these things aggregate um how these things come together it's missing the, the strategy in the end and and it doesn't know what it doesn't know it doesn't know your stock level or your sell through rate or how old the product is the product life cycle these things that you mentioned where i think it's so valuable to be able to put advertising pressure and pricing pressure and these different levers that you can pull to increase pressure and sales volume on or decrease on given products where this product it's more important and valuable for our business to sell it and to sell it now and at a given price point and margin than this other one um and these are this is the level of control and so on that um there's this general problem when we're talking about any technology uh can they deliver that? Can they handle specific use cases or not? Um, and like you said, is everyone in the market adopting it or not? Because then you've lost your differentiation at that point. And what does it even mean anymore to use it, to use something if it's too widely adopted? 
Um, I think these are really interesting challenges and th thanks for sharing that information with us. We, I've got you for a bit longer. So while I've got you on the line, um, I want to ask what's your, what's your take on recent, some recent regulation landing here in Europe, which, you know, I'm wondering if North American or international listeners, to what extent they're even aware of it. I'm wondering even if everyone in Europe is aware of it or, or what the this, this situation is here, but um, it's the so-called omnibus directive. Um, could you maybe explain to us what is at the heart of this, uh, this regulation, particularly as it pertains, as it, as it relates to pricing um, and, and what have you done in regards to this regulation? Yeah, the good omnibus. <laughs> we we heard about it like four weeks before um, it got a rule. Uh, it started on 28th of March this year. And um, what people are most aware of are changes in pricing. Mm -hmm. um, but there are also different uh, other things that omnibus is coming around, like warranty information and mm -hmm. so on. Reviews. But the 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 pricing impact was the the biggest. Mm -hmm. When we heard about it, we directly started to um, see what the impact will be, because the the rule which was published was like very very short, mm -hmm. and um, the information were not clear to my point of view. Then yeah. uh, we started to get in contact with uh, some colleagues from big companies in Germany, like uh, top 10 online players in Germany. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have from school, sometimes ago, we have some connections and um, we talked to them the same day and they said, okay, we took one complete um, team of 10 people who just do omnibus wow. because they said it's too uh, risky because mm -hmm. of the uh, fee if you don't comply with it uh, of four percent of their uh, yearly sales so they said we don't want to pay this fee <laughs> and um, try to figure out what this new law is about mm -hmm. and in fact you have to keep in mind how to present prices mm -hmm. and how uh, prices change. And uh, in this point of view, um, we have to um, differentiate between different types of prices. You have the in Germany, UVP, the, the normal price of the um, supplier, which uh, you don't have to use, mm -hmm. but um, that's the, the normal price, let's say, like, like the, this. The MSRP in the US, for example, I think it's called something else in the UK, but the, the suggested retail price. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the suggested retail price, yeah, mm -hmm. thanks. And um, you have to call it like this, yeah. for example. You don't, uh, you are not allowed to say 249 euros, uh, and then cross it and say now 199 euros. That's mm -hmm. not allowed anymore, uh, unless you say which is the which was the lowest price in the last 30 days. Mm -hmm. So you need to show a, th a third price in that moment. Mm -hmm. But um, if you um, 
say, okay, the 249 euros, this is the suggested retail price of the supplier. You have to write like suggested re retail price after it. And then you are allowed to show a lower price, but you are not allowed to cross it as we interpret yeah. the, the law. Because then it's not, a, in, in German, you call it Streichpreis in the law, but then it's Preis gegenüberstellung. This is the way we found in this law to, to say, okay, we can change the prices every day, yeah. but uh, we are not, um, uh, or by what we think about this law, we are not... Um, in the position that we need to show the third price, so the lowest price for the last 30 days. Mm. But what we also learned about this law is um, percentage prices. Like you show this um, article is 30% less at the moment. If you show it in the product list, that's problematic. And I saw some bigger companies who changed uh, the 20 or 30 percent less uh, to uh, just deal they mm. removed all these percent prices from the, from the um, product list page, product listing pages mm. so uh, we will have to see how this um, law will be um, made more or will get more detail from the from the judges Yeah, exactly. Because, uh, there will be some some fights uh, for sure between companies and lawyers, and then we need to see what the judges say, how to interpret the, the law. Yeah, that's exactly that. That's such a, a challenge because you know you can make this really good faith effort to be compliant um, and and take a conservative stance there, but then ultimately. You know, the way these regulations are so often handed down, and we've seen similar things with uh, GDPR, DSKVO, for example, um, where, you know, it's just not that clear. And it kind of needs how it actually gets enforced or what the final interpretation is, gets settled in the courts. And um, that's, a, that's a growing pain there for sure. And, you know, if there are listeners who are blissfully unaware of, and I don't mean that in a, in a negative way, I mean, I, I think that this this um, regulation was really kind of underhyped compared to something like GDPR. Um, it kind of slipped under the radar a bit from, from my perspective. And, um, but, you know, I think it will take until there's some enforcement efforts or some warnings coming out there um, that, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just remember with, with GDPR, you know, we had a, we had a, a blog article about GDPR compliance back in the days and, It was so interesting to see, um, you know, we went in our Google Analytics and see the traffic on that just mounting and mounting. But really, it spiked on the day before GDPR went into effect, massively spiked the, the amount of traffic that we got. And that's the way it often is, these kind of last minute uh, implementations. And I've, all, I've heard it said that, you know, with Google Analytics 4, that's um, got a sunset date that the the interest level in GA4 implementations will never be higher than the day before universal analytics goes away. And, and it's just the way it is with, with all these changes. But um, I, I really encourage everyone to, to, you know, check out the omnibus regulation and, and it is this kind of risk management topic, you know, what is the cost to my business of being 
compliant in one way or another and um, and what is the what is the upside and downside of that so i want to give you the the final word here max um is there is there anything um that that you'd like to um anyone or any company or anything that you'd like to shout out or promote or um while we've got you on the show yeah in fact um I think uh, the experience we have uh, with online business for the last 12, 14 years um, shows that uh, we are looking to the future, not only online, but also offline. Uh, due to the rebuilding we did in 2019, just before the pandemic, Good times. Um, I, think, uh, uh, I think we are trying to do our best um, to keep the business on track due to the very challenging um, times, and um, I'm looking forward what the the market will be like in one or two years because mm. I think there in in our market there will be huge changes because mm. a lot of um, companies have owners who are like 65 or nearly 70 years old, and um, there will be a change and at the moment it's not clear whether these will just shut down or uh, some other players will, will get bigger and buy them. And I think especially in the combination and uh, in the good, um, yeah, in fact, we, we want to keep it as one big company. Mm. and keep it not as different companies i think this is our advantage for the future yeah. keep in contact with the suppliers keep the brands up keep it service level online and offline mm. and um, be interesting for bigger brands for example we were one of the companies who were allowed to sell remover for the last three years now all the companies in Europe are not allowed anymore. So uh, Remover only wants to sell on their own. But mm -hmm. in Germany beforehand, they were like 550 uh, point of sales. And now uh, in the last three years, there were only 55 in Germany. So we show that service and quality is our aim. Mm -hmm. And we want to keep up this service and quality for the future. That's what we are looking for. Yeah, it makes it makes perfect sense on the business side there, and then it's also reflected in an excellent customer experience. And it's just a total win-win for the for for the for the end customers on the one hand, for the brands on the other hand, and and of course for for you um, supporting that relationship. So thanks so much for sharing all these insights with us today. Really appreciate you taking the time. Also, just a quick note to our listeners that Max is expecting um, his, his second child any time now. Um, so really, we, we didn't know if we would make it through the whole the whole recording or if there would be a phone call. Um, so yeah, thanks again in the circumstances, particularly for, for joining us. Thanks a lot for your time. And I was happy to be your guest today. Thanks for listening to Growing E-Commerce. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider sharing it with coworkers, friends, or within your professional network. We really appreciate it. This podcast is produced by Smarter E-Commerce, also known as SMEC. To learn more, visit smarter.com.
www.ecommerce.com. Thank you.